Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans, the 13th chapter. We are studying this book verse by verse, passage by passage, and have come to a critical section of application that really began back in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul describes that a new life in Christ begins to have dramatic effects internally and externally in the life of a believer. We find ourselves in three verses this morning, and that's Romans chapter 13, verses 8, 9, and 10. Let me read those so that we have them fresh in our minds. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul, writing to these Italians, says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love, love is the fulfillment of the law. Let's begin this morning by thinking about a basic question that I want you to answer and then explore a little bit with your experience. It's about human nature, but it's actually about your nature. It's about what you're really like. It's about what you've always been like. It's certainly about what my heart is like. Do you believe that we are intuitively, by nature, Selfish or selfless? Let's test it. Here's some tests. You just drove into the parking lot of the grocery store. Do you purposefully look at all of those parking spots and decide... I am going to go to the farthest spot possible so that I can leave all those close spots for my neighbors. Or do you spend 30 minutes trying to find the closest spot? How about this? You go into the grocery store and you're looking at the produce. Do you ever think what poor soul is going to get that bruised apple that you bypassed? Or do you think, well, no, I want to get the worst fruit so that the people behind me can get the best fruit. I'm not saying you need to do that. I mean, be a good steward, but just for purposes of argument, 
Are you naturally selfish and looking out for yourself, or do you naturally look out for others? Let's keep going. When you fly, I typically, uh, I actually fly a fair amount. Do you go online to find your seat and pick the middle seat on the back row that doesn't recline so that everyone else can have the windows and the aisles and be far more comfortable? How about today? How about today? You have talked to many people. How many inclusions in your conversation did you allow for personal pronouns? I, me, my. This is how bad it is with me, okay? I was at a a bakery um, just two weeks ago. I've never had this happen to me. I was in a bakery, and there was this one... It was a cookie, and, and I wanted it, and I saw it, and there was one left. And so I was in line. It was, there were four or five people in line, and I, and I asked, I said, um, I want to get that chocolate chip cookie. I'm not making this up. The lady behind me says, no! <laughs> <laughs> and before I could say, excuse me, she said, listen. I wanted that because I wanted to take it to someone who loves those and I want the other three of the other kind as well which would have wiped out all the cookies. (laughs) I literally had this thought, I know what I want to say, but what if this lady visits my church next week? (laughs) (laughs) And so... The, the, the gal behind the counter was as shocked as I was, and I said, okay, she can have the cookie. I mean, I'll, can I have an iced tea? <laughs> and so I ordered the iced tea and, and was, um, I was seething. <laughs> like, this doesn't just happen. And then I was mad at my own wimpiness for why I didn't fight for the cookie. Like, I was in line first, and then I got theological. God's providence put me here before you, lady. (laughs) So I'm theologizing about this. Well, God is so kind, and God is so wise, and God is so infinite in his his multiplicity of ways that he works with us. I I, I let her have the cookie, and I ordered an iced tea, and and then the lady says, in as equally a gruff uh, voice, And I'm going to pay for his tea, too. Thanks. (laughs) But I want that cookie. (laughs) We're so selfish. We are so selfish. We're so selfish, and we don't even think about how selfish we are. In his excellent book, Respectable Sins. How many of you read that book? Oh, my goodness, this is a good book by Jerry Bridges. Basically, he looks at a a series of sins that we so often ignore and not call sins because they're so intuitive. He has a whole chapter on selfishness, and this is what he says. In studying the sin of selfishness, it is helpful to start with the obvious truth that we are born with a selfish nature. One has only to observe preschoolers playing together to see that. How many times does a mother say, Billy, share your toys with Bobby? Or, Bobby, you mustn't grab toys from Billy like that. 
As Billy and Bobby grow older, they learn that such obvious acts of selfishness are socially unacceptable. This lady had not. Anyway. <laughs> so their selfish acts become more subtle, but the problem is still there, he says. Even after we become Christians, we still have the flesh that wars against the spirit, and one of its expressions is selfishness. Bridges continues. Selfishness is a difficult sin to expose because it is so easy to see in someone else, but so difficult to recognize in ourselves. In addition, there are degrees of selfishness as well as degrees of subtlety in expressing it. One person's selfishness may be crass and obvious, like ordering a cookie ahead of a person. Such a person usually doesn't care what others think about him. Most of us, however, do care about what others think of us, so our selfishness will likely be more delicate and refined, end quote. I love how he puts that. Our selfishness is delicate and refined. We cover it up. Did you know that the opposite of love is not hatred? The opposite of love is selfishness. Well, here in Romans 13, we find the opposite of selfishness, the cure for selfishness and the reflection of the fulfillment of everything God requires from us in, drumroll, love. Now remember, as I said earlier, this is still an application, the practical application of what Paul began back in Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, that's externally, as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, the language of the Old Testament sacrificial system, which is your spiritual service of worship. You fulfill the law of God in worshiping God and offering the sacrifices, not by killing animals, but in offering your body as a sacrifice. Then he goes internal. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed where? In the renewing of your mind internally so that you may demonstrate or prove what God's will is for you. That's where he begins, and the rest of the book begins, uh, unpacks and applies what those principles are. Now, I want to dive into these three verses with you together, and I am convinced that love that Paul talks about, love is the signature of Christianity. Now, signature's got a couple of, um, of connotations. Uh, you sign your name, and that represents who you are. That's your signature. If you look at a, 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 gol, a card, a scorecard from a golf course, they almost always have what they call their signature hole, a picture of the most beautiful hole on the golf course. In other words, this is how they want to be known. Well, I was very careful in entitling this message, Love, the Signature of Christianity, or specifically of Biblical Christianity. And let's dive in and look at this together. If you want an outline to follow along, it's very simple. Two ways love is the signature of Christianity. Two ways, Paul identifies, two ways that love is the identifying feature or the signature of being a Christian, of Christianity. The first is in verse 8. The first way is this. Love fulfills our obligation to 
others. Love fulfills our obligation, what we owe to others. Verse 8, and the few verses in the New Testament have been more misunderstood than this one, this first phrase. Paul says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. I was sitting in a seminar many years ago when I heard a man use this verse and say, no Christian should ever have any indebtedness of any kind. Christians should live in a cash society. They should only, so you never owe anybody. Let's get something out of the way at the beginning. This is not a prohibition against borrowing money or lending money or having reasonable and responsible debt. There's a lot of scripture that backs up the regulation of borrowing and lending and debt. Exodus 22, 25, Leviticus 25, Deuteronomy 15, Nehemiah 5, Psalm 15, 37, 26, Ezekiel 22, Matthew 5, Luke 6, I could go on and on. The Bible does not forbid reasonable debt. There's bad debt that's unwise. But reasonable debt, the Bible doesn't forbid. It regulates. That's not what's going on in this verse. Yes, our financial obligations are to be met. And that's a principle not only here, but all the way out through Scripture. What's going on here? Well, remember what we studied last week. Paul has just instructed the Romans... To pay their taxes. Why? Because, according to Jesus himself, they are owed to the government. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and unto God that which is God's. We often look at rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's on tax day or on tax week. But we don't get to the next part where he says, and render unto God what is God's. What do we owe God? Interestingly, what we owe God is the identical thing we owe others. He builds on this idea of owing, being in debt, and being faithful to pay what you owe, what's due. You owe taxes, pay them. He says, guess what? You also owe something else. You have a debt of love that you owe your neighbors. That's what he says clearly in this passage. When you owe someone, you're in their debt. No matter your financial situation, you are in debt this morning and you owe something to, not some people, you owe something to everyone. We are, as believers, in relational debt this morning. Now let me encourage you in a way that I hope doesn't discourage you. And you will never be out of debt now or in eternity. And this is a good debt that draws us to God through our service of others. Let's break it down. Look at it. If anyone, medes in the Greek. You know what it means? Anyone. Neighbor. Find this verse in, this word in verses 9 and 10. One another, Alelus, all over the New Testament. The one another's, love one another, serve one another, give to one another, be kind to one another, be generous to one another, all over the New Testament. Jesus was also clear about this. 
Remember Matthew, you might want to turn here. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verse 43. Because if, the, one question we have to ask is, who is he talking about? And we're going to get into this a little bit more in a moment. Is this, is this just believers? He's spoken a lot about loving believers in the previous chapters. Is this the neighbors that we live around? He uses the word neighbor, or is this our acquaintances, or is this anyone and everyone we come in contact with? Well, Jesus draws a, a spectrum and says, if you know the poles, if you know the ends, if you know the, 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 the edges of who the neighbor is, then everyone in between applies. Jesus in Matthew 5, 43 says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Ha. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Full breaks, screeching halt. They had added to the law which had caused them to think it was justifiable to hate those who were persecuting them. In this context, what Jesus is talking about, it would have been the Romans. So there were a group of people called the Zealots who made their entire living as guerrilla warfare ambushers of the Romans, thinking it was justified because they were to hate their enemies. Jesus said, mm, you've been taught that, you've heard that, tell you what. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Remember Romans chapter 5? It's a good thing if someone would love someone who's a good man, someone we care about. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, God loves his enemies. So he says, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he causes his Son. I love that. He owns the center of our solar system and every other galaxy beyond. His Son, he possesses it. To rise on the evil and the good, he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, for if you have love for those who love you, what reward do you have in, in heaven, or ultimately with him, ultimately before him as his Son? Huh. Do not even the tax collectors love the people who are their friends? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect. You ever heard this verse? You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Is he talking about moral perfection? We lean to want that, but we'll never attain that. But in this context, he's saying if you want to pursue glorifying God, honoring his character, honoring his commands, and being a light as his son, then you love your enemies. What is love? I got my very best Greek lexicon out and looked up the workhorse for love, which is used here, the word agape. This is a quote right out of it. An attitude of appreciation resulting from a conscious evaluation, here it is, and choice. Love is a decision we make and a choice we make 
not a feeling, not an emotion, not something out of our control. We can't say, well, I can't help it. I don't love that person. And God says, well, no, you don't with your emotions. It's a choice you make. To give, listen again, an attitude of appreciation. You do know that all those that we perceive to be enemies in our life that God's providence and sovereignty have put into our lives. You think God is ever, you know, dealing with Pakistan, Afghanistan, and the Middle East and looks over and says, oh, how did they get in your life? They weren't supposed to be messing with you. No. Completely under God's control. No one is beyond the reach of love. The first way that love is a signature of Christianity is it fulfills our obligation and what we owe to others. Paul says we owe a debt of love to our neighbors. When Jesus was asked, who's your neighbor? It's anyone you know. There's a second way, and this is more intense. A second way love is the signature of Christianity. This is the rest of the two verses, two and a half verses. Number two, love fulfills our obedience to God. We owe others love, and now he's going to flesh that out, how that's connected to God. This is nothing short of amazing this is supernatural. No one can sit in a corner and talk themselves into this. No one can go to a weekend retreat and get this without the gospel being believed and understood. Let me, just, let me just encourage you, invite you, and tell you, if you don't submit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, believe that he alone can provide the, the substitution for the death you deserve from the wrath of God, rightly owed us because of our sin, and that he died on the cross for those who had believed and rose three days later to show that he has victory over death and offers us eternal life. If you don't believe that, you can check out right now. These, this next passage is not for you. you. You can't do it. Impossible. Love fulfills our obedience to God. How? Let me give you three reasons under this. First, by satisfying the demands of the law. This is interesting. This is interesting. Love satisfies the demands of the law. The law of God is speaking of the first five books of the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law that gave the regulations and the requirements for being a child of God to the Jews. And in principle... Those laws are the law and heart of God. And Paul expects that there's some fulfillment of those in the life of a New Testament believer. Not in all the sacrificial regulations, but in the heart of it. And we'll see what the heart of it is in a moment. By satisfying the demands of the law. Look in verse 8 in the middle. For he who loves his neighbor... has fulfilled, you could say obeyed, the law of God. Now, before we see how that works out theologically, let's, let's ask the question, what does it mean to love our neighbor? If that fulfills the law of God, 
what does it mean to love our neighbor? Is he talking about people in our neighborhoods? Is that what neighbor means? Well, yes, but more than that, Jesus actually asks and answers the question about the definition of neighbor. Just listen to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. You know this story very well. Who's your neighbor? A lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? He answered, this is the lawyer answering back, Well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor you should love as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But, wishing to justify himself, <laughs> the lawyer says to Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? So Jesus replied and said, tell you what, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That was down in, like going downhill. Fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him. Went away, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going on that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side of this man who had been beaten. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place, saw him. He passed by on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, a hated person. They were extremely racist against the Samaritans. He was on a journey. He came upon this beaten man, saw him. And the Samaritan felt compassion. He came to him. He bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn, paid for it, took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, money, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay to take care of this. Which of these three men, Jesus says, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said to Jesus, well, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, then go and do the same. It satisfies the demands of the law, love does, because the demand is to love our neighbor. There's a second reason here. By summing up the commands of the law. This is, this is where it's fun, if I can say that theologically. By summing up the commands of the law. 636 commands in the law, by the way. Verse 9, Jesus, uh, Paul says, back in Romans 13 now, for this, he says, for here's an example. Here, I, want, I want to put this before you. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, that kind of sums it up. It is summed up in this saying. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
What does Paul do? In random order, he picks out four of the Ten Commandments. But more than that, he picks out four of the six commandments that deal with our neighbor. The commandments, Ten Commandments are broken down into two categories. The first four commandments, and this gets a little tricky, the first four commandments are how we would love and respond to God. The second six commandments are how we respond to others. Now, the fourth commandment does both. The fourth commandment, we'll see in a moment, teaches us something about how to love and obey God, and it also teaches us how to love and obey and honor others. I'll show you that in a moment. He says, here's, here's uh, four commandments. It just kind of takes them at random, not in order. And he also adds to those commandments, Leviticus 19, 18, which says, You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because I am the Lord. So Paul stitches together four exemplary commands and a summary command of loving your neighbor from Leviticus 19, verse 18. Paul is saying something here about which we should take serious note all commandments and all laws and all regulations in the Old Testament that govern relationships with others are essentially summed up in one command. Love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. This should not surprise us. Jesus himself, Matthew 22, you know it very well. He combines the Shema, the great command to love God, with Leviticus 19, the command to love others, when he says this. And again, the Pharisees are after him again. The, the Pharisees heard that Jesus, this is Matthew 22, 34 and following. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, keep mentioning the term lawyer in the New Testament is not an attorney like we think of it. The term lawyer is a theologian. It's an it's a order of the scribes. It's someone who was an expert in the law of Moses. That's the term lawyer. So a theologian, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And the reason he was doing this is whatever Jesus said, he thought, I can up him with another law. That's how confident he was. Jesus said to him, tell you what, I'll answer that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. Before the attorney on the law of Moses, the lawyer, the theologian can say anything else. Then Jesus says, the second is like it. He said, what's the best? Jesus says, I'm going to give you one and two. The second is like the first commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, everything in the Old Testament can be summed up in two commands. Loving God and loving others. So back to verse 9 in chapter 13 of Romans. For this, think about this. You shall not commit adultery, murder, steal, covet, and you shall love others as yourself. Paul uses a term here, by the way, that should be a flashing red light when you read this. <laughs> All the commandments are, here's the word, summed up 
He says the same thing that Jesus says. The entire law in terms of our relationship with others is summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. We'll come back to yourself in just a moment. Now, can we take a little field trip, just, just a quick field trip, back to Exodus. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. What is in Exodus chapter 20? You should know this. The Ten words of Moses, good. The Ten Commandments. I want to show you something that is so obvious that Jesus is leveraging, using, and employing that Paul is also building upon regarding the law. Remember, you got 636, you got some socials, you got some uh, um, uh, reli- religious uh, laws that are governing the sacrificial system in Israel. But then you have 10 words, 10 laws, and Jesus is saying you can only have two to sum those up. Let's look at the Ten Commandments for a moment. Because listen, the Ten Commandments are how you love God and how you love others. Said another way, the Ten Commandments are all about protecting and promoting God's rights and protecting and promoting the rights of others, not about our own rights. Verse 3 of Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. That's God's right to exclusive allegiance. We're protecting and promoting God's right to exclusive allegiance. He says, no other gods before me. The second commandment, verse 4. This is God's right to the definition of his image. I define what I'm like and how I'm seen. You shall, verse 4, not make for yourself an idol or any likeness that is in heaven above or earth beneath or under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing kindness, loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. The second commandment then is God's right to the definition of, an Im- of his image. We don't redefine God. We let him define himself, and it's not in idolatry. He spoke long ago in the fathers and the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us in his son, Hebrews 1 tells us. The third commandment. The third commandment is God's right to honor and respect. You know it. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. This is not about cussing. To take, the Hebrew word nasa means to bear, to carry, or to wear. You shall not wear the name of the Lord your God in a vain way. In other words, don't act like you belong to God with your mouth and not act like it with your life. That's God's right to honor and respect. And then the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. Seventh day is when the Lord rested. You shall not do any work, or you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, see that's all that's in them. And rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. There's two things going on there. We honor and protect the rights of God in that by letting him have that day in in a way that he defines what we do. For the Israelites, it was on the sixth day, uh, the seventh day, which was Saturday. And they were to say, we're going to give you our complete attention that day. That command, by the way, is not repeated in the New Testament. It's 
transformed in Hebrews 4, looking at the Sabbath as a time of rest in heaven, which quotes Psalm 95, which was looking at the Sabbath as a resting in the promised land. So God is applying the Sabbath differently in the progression of Scripture. But basically, he's saying, I have the right to tell you what to do on whatever day I want to. That's protecting and promoting God's right. But that also functions horizontally because he also says in Deuteronomy 5, which is repetition of this command, he basically says, give your, give your cattle and your workers and your servants and your children a day off. Love them by giving them a day off. So if you want to be a Sabbatarian, remember that that means you work for six days and you don't have a weekend, you have a day. So be careful in not becoming a Sabbatarian. The fifth commandment, now we're looking into protecting and promoting and loving our neighbor. The right to parental respect. Verse 12, honor your father and mother that you may, that your days may be prolonged in the land which God gives you. This is father, mother, any authority, honor them. Protect their right to respect. The sixth commandment, the right to life, you shall not murder. When you are protecting others' life, you would not take theirs. Eighth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. That's protecting others' right to a pure marriage. That was number seven. Number eight, the right to personal property. You shall not steal. Don't take their stuff. Number nine the, nine, the right to an honest reputation. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You don't lie against people. And the 10th commandment, the right to security. You don't covet your neighbor's house or his wife or his servant. Whatever he owns, his donkeys, you, you let them have the right to security. In other words, you're not a threat. That's how you love your neighbor. First four, how do you love God? Second six, how you love your neighbor. Now, here it is. How do you know how to do those things and to what extent and to what degree? (laughs) Because Paul tells you what Moses told the Israelites and Paul will tell the Ephesians is that you love others in the way that you love who? Yourself. Has anyone ever gone to a course, a week-long course, that says, I want to tell you how to look after your own interests, how to love yourself? No one does. When Paul's talking to the husbands in Ephesians 5, he says, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as God also does in Christ, through Christ the church. I understand that people have quote-unquote low self-esteem. I understand that people could come to the end of desperation. But what you, you know what that really is? That's pride in the heart of the weak. John Piper talks about this. What that is is pride that says, I love me so much that I'm going to do something desperate because you don't love me as much as I do. I like how Ken Boa says it. Loving one's neighbor as oneself does not imply a self-focused infatuation with ourselves. Rather, it's simply a way of saying, take care of your neighbor with the same natural motivation that you take care of yourself. 
How do you know how to take care of other people? Because you know how to take care of yourself. How do you know how to please others? Because you know what pleases you. Do you understand a little bit more what Jesus meant when he says that Christianity is fundamentally taking up your cross and dying to self daily? Was the third reason that love fulfills our obedience to God. This sums it all up. Verse 10. By honoring the purpose of the law. What is the, why do we do this? Paul explains this. By honoring the purpose of the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor than the famous therefore, the explanation word, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. In other words, the purpose of the law is to teach us how to love and avoid doing harm or wrong to our neighbor. This verse is shorthand for everything the Bible teaches about relationships with other people. You will fulfill everything if you just love them. And you'll know how to love them when you know how you want to be loved. It goes a step farther, though, and tells us why. Because love does no wrong to anyone. What does it mean to do wrong to someone? Well, can I invite you into my conviction zone that, that visited me when I was studying this passage? Um, that includes, includes gossip and slander. That's doing wrong to someone. You're not loving them when you're speaking wrongly about them. And you know the old saying that gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. Flattery is saying something to their face you would never say behind their back. And slander is just being mean and saying something mean about someone. Doing wrong to someone also includes conniving and revenge. Wow, revenge has no place in the life of a believer. I'm going to let them go. I'm going to let them have it. I'm going to get them back. Jesus would say, no, I already did that for you on behalf of God on the cross. Doing wrong means plotting and hoping for problems with people that we, we think deserve it. The people who you think deserve to get what they deserve, are you praying that they don't? Refusing to sacrifice time and resources for those in need. When you see a way that you could sacrifice your own time and resources to meet the need of someone else, and you say, no, I'm not going to do it. Doing wrong also includes just being mean and being bitter. Meanness and bitterness. Or turning the other way to look somewhere else, expecting someone else will love them since we're not. Wow, just think of how you feel wronged and do the opposite to others. Listen, I get it. We have some wounded hearts in our body here. We have people who are wounded and hurt and can point to a long, true list of ways that people have wronged us and hurt us, overlooked us, abused us, mistreated us, used and misused us. We have a long list of those things. Paul's saying, you know that list? Look at it. And don't ever do that to anyone else. 
How important is this? <laughs> it's eternally important. Salvation is at stake in how we love one another. You say, where do you get that? John, in 1 John 4, said this, verse 20. If someone says, I love God, I love God, I have my act together with God, go to church and discipleship, attend Bible studies and fellowships and events, I love God and hates his brother. That just means doesn't love them. He is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother, his neighbor. Which brings us back to verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone. Pay your obligations except owe love one to the other. It's an ongoing debt that you not are only obligated to fulfill, but you should find joy in fulfilling. This kind of love is not only it's not possible without Christ, but this kind of love exudes from those who love Christ. I just dream a bit. Studying at this passage, by the way, at that same coffee shop bakery that I was de-cookied. Sitting there looking at this passage this week and thinking, what would Mission Road Bible Church look like if we all turned up this commitment even a little. How do you love each other? How do you want to be loved? It's pretty simple. We love as we love ourselves. You know exactly how to make others happy. From enemies to acquaintances to the body of Christ. The whole range is involved in the admonition of what we owe, which is love, to anyone we know. That fulfills our obligation to the law, and that fulfills our obedience to God. Pretty good summary Paul gave us, isn't it? Based on Jesus himself. Let me pray for us.